This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. You'll find us here talking about behavioral health, substance abuse, treatment, and uh, for this program, a particular emphasis on something that you're probably reading a lot about, and it has to do with harm reduction. We could have no better guest to talk about that that, uh, topic on, on this day, the 31st of August, which has for several years now been designated Overdose Awareness Day, than to welcome executive director and co-founder of an organization called the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Prevention Coalition. Devin Reeves is our guest on Recovery Radio. Overdose Awareness Day, harm reduction, the topics on this edition of Recovery Radio, of course, sponsored by Retreat Behavioral Health. So we welcome uh, Devin Reeves to the program. Uh, Devin, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, boss. I really appreciate the opportunity. Our, our pleasure. Uh, we're we're going to get very uh, specific about what your organization does and how you came to uh, to uh, found it and what its mission is and all of that. Uh, but we, we want to begin with your story because I know from having spoken to you prior to getting you on the program here uh, that you very recently uh, celebrated a, a pretty significant anniversary for yourself. You're you are now uh, how many years uh, sober? Yeah, I just celebrated 12 years in recovery. Uh, it's a real blessing. It, it's, it's a miracle, and it almost is unbelievable. I can't believe that I've made it this far. Um, and, you know, all thanks go to God and my family for making this possible. Well, that's what we want to talk about before we get into your work now and the whole notion of uh, overdose awareness. Let, let's begin with uh, the, the Devin Reeves story. Where are you from? Yeah, so I'm originally from Washington State. Uh, I was born on a military base in Tacoma, Washington. Both my parents were in the military. Um, my father had a struggle with substances when I was very young, and due to his substance use and his problems with heroin, he left our lives when I was around two. Uh, my pa- my mother moved back to northeastern Pennsylvania, up in the Scranton area, to kind of, you know, reassess, get her life back together. She went back to college. She went to medical school and really took me along on a great journey with her to really improve her life and our lives as a single mom, uh, which wasn't a common thing coming from a small uh, Italian Roman Catholic family. Let me tell you what. Hmm. Uh, You know, so we moved a lot growing up. Uh, When I was um, about 14 years old, she moved us to a little town in South Jersey called Voorhees, New Jersey. And she promised that we would live there for four years so I could finish college in one place. Um, And being somebody that moved a lot, you know, and being a person that was half black, half white, living in a lot of rural places, it was easy to not fit in. (laughs) Yeah, right. Sure. And when I when I made friends in Voorhees uh, and they said, do you want to get high? I knew drugs were bad, but I wanted to fit in a little bit more than I wanted to not use drugs. So. I got high for the very first time when I was 14 years old, uh, actually smoking crack cocaine behind a strip mall because the cool kids were doing it. And I loved everything about it. Uh, You know, going through high school, I was a recreational drug user. I did well in school, National Honor Society, football team. I wrestled. uh, But by the time my senior, junior year rolled around, I was experimenting heavily, using uh, a variety of substances, 
and it was really the beginning of the unmanageability in my life. Um, I moved, I went to Drexel University for college, and again, I was in that same situation. I don't know anybody, I wanna fit in, and the people that are drinking and drugging heavily were the people I gravitated to. I joined a fraternity, um, made a lot of lifelong friendships, but there was also a lot of people who said, let's drink on Thursday night. And then another group of people that said, let's drink on Friday night. <laughs> another group of people said, let's drink on Saturday night. So it was always easy to kind of hide how much substances I consumed. And things just progressed and got worse over time. Um, I think a real down point for me in my college career is when I got suspended for a year due to my drug and alcohol use. And then I came back and I barely skipped a beat. I was right back at it. Um, but the lowest point was we were at a party at our fraternity. We were all drinking and using drugs. And um, one of my fraternity brothers uh, left uh, because I was distracted trying to get the attentions of a young lady uh, rather than saying to him, hey, sleep on my couch so I know you're safe. And he drove home and he died. Um, after he got into an accident. And I just started drinking every day after that. And that really began the beginning of a, a year and a half, two year cycle to the beginning of my recovery journey. You know, in that time I began smoking crack cocaine every day, uh, using heroin, becoming, you know, unstably housed. Uh, and it all kind of crescendoed on August 20th, 2007, when I overdosed from speedballing and woke up at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania with my mother standing over me with syringes and pipes and baggies saying, this isn't who I raised you to be. Yeah, let, let, uh, did, uh, how old are you, Devin, by, by, by the way? Sure, I am 36, and I was 24 when I found when I when I began my journey yeah, of recovery. Yeah, you, you know your story is. Uh, we we always say uh, that everybody's story of substance abuse and recovery is the same, except they're all different. Um, a couple of things though that stand out for me. Uh, you say you your first experiment with drugs was crack cocaine. One of the things that I find uh, remarkable and tragic about the younger generation that's been caught up in both the opiate situation and, and substance abuse in general is that their entry to drugs is often at a a very dangerous level. And this notion that, you know, sort of beer leads to marijuana leads to this, that paradigm has been broken. It, uh, I mean, you, you were, you know, you, you started off on crack cocaine. That's a pretty serious uh, first step. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of the old tropes about drug use and substance use disorder really don't hold up in 2019. You know, it is it is better thought that trauma is the gateway drug. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that many people that have substance use disorders experience childhood molestation, uh, parental abuse, you know, all of these things that lead people to not knowing how to cope with things or developing healthy coping strategies because what they're being asked to cope with is too much for the mind of a child, too much for the mind of an adolescent. Mm -hmm. And substances calm all that down. Mm -hmm. They turn down the volume. Uh, and it's it's 100% understandable, but we've still got a criminal justice and treatment system and society that doesn't believe those truths or doesn't buy into those truths. Yeah, we're, we're trying to catch up on the, the what's, what's the truth about this situation on the ground while still dragging around a lot of 
misconceptions. The whole idea of the gateway drug, while understandable on one level, we wasted a lot of time thinking, that you well, if we could just keep them away from beer or marijuana, they'll never develop a stronger habit. I can't right. tell you the number of young people I've spoken to uh, over the last five years we've been doing the program who told me their introduction to substance abuse was, was opioids and heroin. I mean, you know, you, you're starting at that level. You've got nothing but trouble in front of you. What, the other thing that stood out in, in your story for me is this notion, and this is another thing people can't get their heads around, is that, well, gee, when, you know, you go to college where everybody's drinking, how come you're drinking or, you know, misbehaving and abusing stuff accelerated? And didn't you notice that you were passing everybody? You talked about finding the group you fit into. That's another common experience of people who are going to uh, abuse drugs. They, they surround themselves with, you know, like-minded folks and everything looks normal. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just to go back a second, I do, you know, the research does indicate that the earlier you start using drugs, the more likely you are to develop a substance use disorder, which is different than using drug A leads to drug B, C, and D, right? And those two concepts have often been conflated together, and that's just not true. And to your second point, 100%, you know, I go into a big college that's got 20,000, 30,000 kids, it's easy to be a social butterfly and find different parties in different nights. So, so that everything you're doing, which is irrational, harmful, and abnormal, suddenly looks like, <clears throat> pardon me, this is what we do. This is, this is what is expected of me to be part of the group. Do you have siblings, uh, Devin? No, I'm an only child. Yeah. You, now, your mom experienced uh, substance abuse uh, with her husband. Um, did you you were successful it sounds like in hiding this from her is that right oh absolutely she did not i think there were a lot of signs that i had a problem including being kicked out of school being 24 years old and still you know asking her for money and support but you know a parent wants to believe the best about their child and they don't pay attention to the red flags but when i overdosed and woke up at the hospital uh, and my, you know, people in my life were there and brought her like, this is what's going on with Devin. It was undeniable. Uh, that, that was the first time that you overdosed? Yes, sir. You know, one of the things I'm struck by is every time I read about accidental overdoses, aren't all overdoses accidental? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I think a lot about language really in a lot of ways. I'm a professional talker. That's what I do all the time. You know, I travel around to conferences and speak quite often. And this idea of overdose is similar to the idea of committed suicide, right? When we say somebody committed suicide, we put the onus on them of the behavior when we, you know, think about sentence structure and verbs, right? Mm -hmm. They did this to themselves. Mm -hmm. And part of it is the system around them failed, our medical system, right? They had undiagnosed mental health problems. Um, and it's very much the same way with overdose. There's this idea that they did this bad thing, not that the system has failed them, which is true. Of course, there's a personal accountability factor. But, you know, when we think about prohibition and drug policy in America and access to health care, you know, those also play factors. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I see some people discuss overdose as, you know, an accidental drug poisoning. It's interesting, the, the, this shift from uh, looking at an overdose, for instance, or even a suicide, as something that someone did to themselves rather than something that happened to them. 
is not a small thing. Devin um, Reeves is our guest on on this uh, day, which is designated internationally, by the way, as Overdose Awareness Day. He is the executive director and co-founder of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Prevention Coalition, about which more later. We continue with Devin's story, um, how he managed to, uh, over a decade ago to... Uh, to, to get his life back on track and uh, live a sober life straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. On this, the uh, 31st of August, the International Overdose Awareness Day, our guest is Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, Devin Reeves. He's now a, a, an advocate for, as we said, harm reduction. We're going to find out about the coalition straight ahead as we continue Devin's story of his struggle with substance abuse and his uh, subsequent road to uh, recovery. Devin, after that that overdose, um, so you had two traumatic events that caught your attention, a de- the death of a friend and then your overdose, your mom's shock at finding uh, what, what you were up to and you're in this hospital. So that's the point at which you say, I've got to do something. Take us through your journey of uh, treatment and recovery. Sure. So she's there. She says to me, you know, in the hospital, Devin, you know, this isn't who I raised you to be. You know, this isn't who our people are. She goes, if you don't get help, you know, you're out of the family. And I, of course, said it's not that bad. I could fix it by myself. I could stop anytime I want. And I storm out of the ho- the, um, the hospital room. And I'm walking down the hallway, and I realize my butt is cold because I've got one of those gowns on and not my clothes. So I need to walk back into the room um, get my clothes. My mother's crying in the corner. I eventually decide to take her support and help. And, and really, I was blessed because I had an abundance of access to resources. I had insurance through my mother. And when I wanted to go to treatment, it was available. And I went that day. Went on a plane to Florida. I went down to a program called the Behavior Health of the Palm Beaches or BHOP. I was there for 90 days. Afterward, they said, you should go to a halfway house. I went to a halfway house. Uh, When I was in that halfway house, I had a cousin who lived in South Florida. She helped me find a job. She actually helped me find that halfway house. Excuse me. She uh, took me to work. And for a while, I was working as a stock boy at a local beauty supply shop. And it was really the first time in my life that I had found agency. I was paying my own bills. I was buying my own groceries. I was an adult quite possibly for the first time in my 24 years of life. Um, But I had the guy that ran the program said to me, Devin, you know, if you're still working at a beauty supply shop a year from now, not back in school, you're really going to waste your life. And that really resonated with me because I did want to uh, get an education and really find out a way to help other people as I had been helped beyond just being a member of a 12-step fellowship sponsoring people and being a good member of the fellowship. So I was blessed to be able to go back to school. I attended a small school called Lynn University in South Florida, and I really made going to school my job, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I was there every day from nine to five, no matter what. I went to the library, all the librarians knew me, all my professors knew me. I learned how to be a student again from the professionals around me that saw my potential. They talked to me about how do you break down a syllabus? How do we write rough drafts, doing a web, doing an outline? I learned how to write papers all over again. And I did really well in school. And after uh, some time, I had some professors who said, Devin, you should 
consider graduate school. And, you know, uh, a lot of my professors were social workers. I thought an MSW made a lot of sense for me, a master's in social work. And I applied to schools in Philadelphia, back where I got high and in South Florida. And really my reach school was the University of Pennsylvania. And I think part of it was is that Drexel is right next to the University of Pennsylvania, but Penn is really like Drexel's hotter, older brother. And I thought <laughs> if Penn, you know, if I could get into Penn, it would somehow be a redemption from being kicked out of Drexel kind of unceremoniously at the height of my substance use disorder or the height of my drug use. And I was accepted, and I just remember getting the phone call, congratulations, Devin, we'd like you to offer you an opportunity to study at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. And I just hit my knees and thanked God so much for the opportunity. But at the same time, I was really scared. Moving back to Philly uh, to restart uh, my life. You know, I've been building a foundation. Now I'm going to really build my life in the city I used to get high in. Right. And you, that was scary. Yeah, you may have crossed Market Street from Drexel's campus to Penn's, but you were pretty much in the same environment uh, or, or you know, surroundings right. anyway that you were getting high in. By the way, uh, when you began your uh, your treatment and your recovery, um, what was your substance abuse problem at that time? Was it opioids? Was it heroin? Yeah, o- yeah opioids. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I was like a lot of people. I was a polysubstance user, right? Mm-hmm. You know, cocaine, crack cocaine, uh, opioids, benzodiazepines, alcohol. I mean, I was so hurting uh, that anything I could use to kind of numb that pain was on the menu. The, the other remarkable thing about your story of substance abuse and then and then recovery is that you were highly motivated and you listened to people who were telling you um, that this is this is a path you should take. This is this is the these are the things we think you should do. Uh, have you pondered why you were so receptive to that when when so many other people we talk to have to go through a couple of stumbles along the way? You, you don't seem to have had that problem. Yeah, and, and by no means it was my recovery journey a linear process like most people, but uh, I was at my absolute rock bottom on August 20th, 2007. And when I got a taste of recovery, it was amazing. You know, in the beginning, it was just one foot in front of the other, but then you start feeling good. You started getting the trust of your family members. And the biggest part was I had mentors and people around me beyond my 12-step fellowship that said, Devin, you could do something special. You know, they spent extra time with me. They took me out to coffee. They helped me with my graduate school applications, with my college applications. Um, And I also had a therapist after treatment that was also very supportive. So I had a lot of great people in my life, including my cousin, who were investing in me and building me up because I was a broken man the day I went into treatment. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, the story you tell now of the help you had, the work you did, and the path you, you traveled to get sober has, of course, led you to, as you said, your, your degrees in, uh, in social work and then your work as a community organizer and a grassroots advocate. We're going to find out about that work and, and how uh, uh, Devin took what happened to him and turned it into something very positive as the co-founder of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. That's straight ahead on Recovery Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano is my name. We are here uh, talking about behavioral health, which is altogether uh, appropriate. Our sponsor is Retreat, 
behavioral health. They, um, they're a very uh, renowned organization that has been helping people for a very long time. Uh, initially in prim- and primarily in the substance abuse and treatment area, now they've expanded their purview to cover a wide range of both mental health and substance abuse issues under the uh, umbrella of behavioral health. Uh, Re- Retreat sponsors this program in the best possible uh, context. Uh, this is not a- an infomercial for them. So when I give you their phone number, uh, in spite of the fact their reputation is sterling, they helped a lot, a lot of people. They want you listening to the program for its informational and educational Value. If there are any questions or comments about anything going on in your life regarding mental health issues, insurance issues, substance abuse, treatment, whatever, somebody at retreat will answer your questions authoritatively. 855-859-8808 is how you reach them. Retreat Behavioral Health, 855-859-8808. Our guest on the telephone is executive director and co-founder of an organization called the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. Devin Reeves joins us in that capacity. He's told us his story of struggling with substance abuse and then recovery uh, on this, the 31st of August, which is designated internationally as Overdose Awareness Day. You know, uh, Devin, before we get into the uh, particulars of your group, how you found it and and what what the mission is, why do we need an Overdose Awareness Day to begin with? Sure. You know, um, we're really today in what experts or data wonks would call the fourth wave of the overdose epidemic. You know, we have in the early 90s when heroin was becoming popular, our prescription pills uh, were very popular, and then we restricted their access. And then we saw heroin really coming back on the scene and increase in overdose deaths. And the third phase is which we're just kind of leaving now is the introduction of fentanyl and other synthetic opioids and their analogs, which really skyrocketed overdose deaths. And now we're in the third phase, fourth phase of the overdose epidemic, which is really gonna be uh, supercharged by stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine. And despite the fact we've seen, you know, a, uh, an exponential, and in the truest sense of the word, an exponential increase in overdose deaths, we haven't seen the policy shift to mitigate that. Uh, and as our communities, our loved ones, our family, our friends are impacted by overdose, key decision makers aren't responding in a way that really centers public health. We focus on criminal justice and kind of outdated tropes, and far too many communities are hurting. So International Overdose Awareness Day is about lifting up those voices so we can have real meaningful change. You know, it, it, we'll get deeper into this. I don't want to go to it, to it now, but it is interesting to note that you've got the uh, larger community, all of us together, confronting a, 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 a substance abuse uh, epidemic, trying to deal with the reasons that's happening, trying to get people the treatment they need, and then almost on a dime – something very significant changed that caused the shift to go from, well, you know, all of that's still important, stopping the deaths. We'll find out, you know, basically what contributed to that. But but before we get into that, tell us about the founding of the uh, Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, how did you come to do that? And what was your, what's your mission? What's the mission? Sure. So um, just a real quick pick up where I dropped off. When I was in graduate school, I lost my best friend, a a young man named AJ, who was actually the kid I got high with for the very first time when I was 14 years old. And I was devastated. His family was devastated. And 
you know, around that same time, I also learned about the medication naloxone, which could reverse an overdose uh, if somebody was experiencing from opioids. And we pulled people together from across the region to try to pass legislation that would allow naloxone to be expanded, uh, expand access to naloxone in Pennsylvania because it was happening in New Jersey and it was happening in Delaware. It was happening across the country. And really today, naloxone is ubiquitous because we helped pass David's law because before that, naloxone wasn't allowed to be in the hands of bystanders, in the hands of people who use drugs, in the, in the hands of law enforcement and family members. And we fought for two years, and that was really my first case of advocacy. As a social worker, we're taught if your client isn't succeeding because the system is stacked against them, then we must advocate for change at the system level. And that really uh, is who I am as a person, right? I'm a social worker. That is very much part of my identity. And, you know, I've been doing advocacy for, you know, kind of nonstop since then, and what I found is that we didn't really have a significant uh, advocacy voice in Pennsylvania. So I created the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition with the hope of really uh, centering the voice of those most impacted by drug use, failed policy, and really helping them build up power to be part of the change. Yeah, it's interesting you frame it that way because it's um, it should be apparent, but it's not. We're still not completely clear in a lot of people's minds about what harm reduction really is all about. Uh, folks look at it as though, look, uh, as a society, we're prepared to help people uh, treat them for substance abuse and behaviors that are hurting them, but but really, we're not we're not in the business of enabling them. This this uh, confusion about that still exists in certain quarters. When you talk about harm reduction. What what are you saying to sure. people who, who, who say, hey, look, you're just enabling them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is idiotic at best and harmful and really dangerous at worst. You know, there was a time in our society where car accidents were the number one cause of accidental death in America, right? Uh, and then we got, we looked at it and we said, well, we could make cars safer. We could make roads safer. We created seatbelts. We made them mandatory. We created airbags. We made those mandatory, right? Those are all harm reduction practices. The sun is a very powerful thing, right? It can cause cancer. It can cause sunburn. We don't say, don't drive your car. Don't get out into the sun. We say, put your seatbelt on. Have an airbag. Put on suntan lotion. Uh, get out of the sun every uh, little bit when you're out. And it's the same way with drug use. People are going to use drugs for all the reasons we talked about earlier, because they have a mental health concern, because they're uh, a victim of trauma, so on and so forth. And how do we create a system that says, we don't want you to use drugs, but if you're going to use drugs, please do it in a way that doesn't hurt you and those around you. Just say no. We've got to just say no wasn't working. Right, right, 100%. And naloxone is a great example of harm reduction, right? We, most overdoses are actually reversed by people who use drugs together. But we don't invest in, as a society, making sure those people have naloxone. We invest in cops having Narcan, and people don't want to call the cops. No, no, indeed, they're worried they're about. They're afraid to they're, call the cops yeah, far too often, yeah. and that's why it's important that we pass the nine one one Good Samaritan policy, David's law in Pennsylvania, which gave people. Um, oh, I can't think of the word. 
you, you mean in, uh, it gave people immunity if right. they called 911 when their friend was overdosing yeah. to not be uh, arrested and charged. These are good Samaritan laws, you mean, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that goes on in Pennsylvania, I think, was in the forefront of this is that you can now go into any pharmacy in the Commonwealth and get uh, and get a prescription for um, Narcan, correct? Yeah. So, yeah. So, Dr. Levine, when she was the physician general, she's currently the uh, secretary of health signed a standing order so there is there is a liter- essentially a script at every pharmacy uh, in the Commonwealth for naloxone but the truth is is that we didn't implement that very well you know I was just speaking to somebody the other day who said I went to five pharmacies and four of them asked me for a prescription and none of them were stocking it well, what's causing that uh, that bottleneck well, I mean, we're just not invest, in, investing the resources to make sure people have it. And the truth is, you know, we had last year what was called naloxone day where the state gave out, you know, uh, several thousand doses of naloxone in various uh, communities across the state. But the truth is, is somebody at the height of their substance use disorder really going to go into some place and make sure they and, and know, find out that there's naloxone there and then go and get it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what it comes down to is everyone that experiences an overdose, the system has already failed multiple times to teach them, one, how to avoid overdose, and two, give them naloxone. Mm-hmm. You know, at the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, we're hyper-focusing on reducing overdose deaths among the three populations that are most likely to overdose. People that are coming out of jails and prisons are 40 to 120 times more likely to die of an overdose in the first two weeks they get out of jail than the general public. Every treatment, every uh, correctional facility should be offering evidence-based treatment while individuals are there and also give them a dose of naloxone when they get out. The second most likely uh, audience, the group of people that die of an overdose are people getting out of treatment. We need treatment centers to be more harm reduction focused. Today a treatment center says, you know, Devin, as they say, you know, as a client, Devin, you need to get well if you want to survive this substance use disorder. What we want them to say is we need you to survive the substance use disorder so you can get well. Yes. Right. Teach some information about don't mix drugs. It makes you more likely to overdose. We don't want you to use drugs again. But if you do start low and go slow. And here's a dose of naloxone for you. And here's a dose of naloxone for your family member. And that's really the gold standard. And and we at the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition are holding summits across the state to do just that. And we're having our first one in September in Philadelphia. We're very excited about that. And And the last group that's highly likely to experience an overdose is people that are using drugs right now. And the best way to engage people that are using drugs right now, especially IV drug users, are syringe service programs. So we're advocating to expand those as well. You know, when we come back after the break here now for, for uh, to wrap up here, I do want to talk about perhaps uh, the most recent and uh, maybe even the most controversial harm reduction uh, initiative, and, and that is uh, safe injection sites. Uh, Devin uh, Reeves is our guest. He's executive director and co-founder of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition on this uh, Overdose Awareness Day. We have more Recovery Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martorano with you, our guests on the telephone, executive director and co-founder of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, Devin Reeves. He is here talking to us and highlighting uh, overdose awareness on this International Overdose Awareness Day. Every year, August the 31st is when we note that. Uh, 
Devin, just a few more minutes on the notion of harm reduction and clearing up confusion in some people's minds would still linger about, you know, the difference between keeping people alive so that they can get uh, sober and enabling them to continue getting high. One of the more controversial at the moment um, efforts in that regard has to do with safe injection sites. What are they and, and why do they why do you think they're necessary? Sure. Uh, so let me just take it back one step. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got programs that have been around for about 30 years. Uh, they're called syringe service programs. These are programs that actively engage people that are using drugs, give them sterile syringes and other works so that they can cut down on the rates of HIV, hepatitis C, bloodborne pathogens, soft tissue infection. And really what those programs do is they say, you know, what do you need right now? You need a sandwich? Let's get you a sandwich. You need a shower? You need a shower? Let's get you a shower. You need sterile syringes? Let's do that. And it begins building a relationship with somebody that's not going to say, walk into a treatment center and say, I want help. And, and let's just ignore the fact that a lot of times people can't get into treatment. They don't have insurance. They don't have the right ID and all of that. Forget that. It begins the process of build, building a relationship. And people that engage in syringe service programs are actually five times more likely to enter treatment but unfortunately, because our legislators in Harrisburg refuse to act, they're illegal in the state of Pennsylvania. And a, a supervised injection facility is really the next step of that. Because why should we give people syringes so they can, you know, use drugs in a safe way without, and you know, ending up dead, and then tell them go shoot drugs in the alley? That makes no sense. Why not have a place where they can be medically monitored if they do overdose and help them begin their journey to recovery? kind of the most famous syringe service program in North America is Insight. Um, And on the first floor of Insight is the supervised injection facility. The second floor is the detox. And the third floor is the treatment center. And I think that's the type of model we need to invest in America. Um, And there's a group in Philadelphia, Safe House, that is trying to open the first supervised injection facility in America. And they're actually being sued by the administration who says that this is illegal? Yeah, that and co- they're in court currently. Yeah, yeah, right at the moment. It's a big, it's a big and important uh, court case. It, no one that I've spoken to who is honestly involved in the issue of harm reduction has uh, has ever suggested that this is just about making sure people have a, a safe um, uh, space and equipment to get high. It always goes hand in hand with trying to get them treatment while facilitating this. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look at Prevention Point Philadelphia, which is the large syringe service program in Philadelphia, you know, when somebody walks in, they're asking, hey, do you want help today to start a journey to wellness? No? Okay. Well, then what else do you need? And it would be the same way at Safe House, right? There'd be an intake process, there'd be a screening, and we would offer people help consistently. You know, the harm reduction perspective says you're doesn't say you know, you're a piece of crap if you don't get help. It says, when you're ready for help, we're here. And that's so important. Fentanyl was the um, tipping point with regard to this. Overdoses is all, have always been a part of substance abuse, and deaths from overdose were also uh, often a part, but not at the rate of, uh, of uh, fatalities because of fentanyl. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the last year that we have statewide data available, which was 2017, we had over 5,400 overdose deaths. And since I've been in recovery, almost 35,000 people have died in the state of Pennsylvania. And that's just a tragedy. And the potency of 
the heroin has increased in that time period, as well as the potency of the drugs in general. You know, fentanyl is many times more powerful than um, heroin. What it comes down to is people are using what they think is just enough to get them high, and it actually causes an overdose, and that overdose happens very quickly. Uh, uh, Devin, we have a few uh, minutes left here now. I want to talk about um, the uh, coalition. Who you're partnered with? You'll partner with anybody who's conscientious about helping, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we partner with universities, syringe service programs, advocacy groups all over the state. And really, our philosophy is we need to take the the power out of the DA's hands, out of the elected's hands, out of you know large treatment centers' hands, and really empower people to be the change agent in the community. You know, when warm handoff programs started, hospitals were patting themselves on the back, like we have a recovery coach every day from eight to four. Well, people don't use drugs at that time period, right? You know, and most of the overdoses came when there was no recovery coach on staff. And if they had included the voice of people who use drugs, people in recovery, and centered their voice, they would have known that. And we must do the same thing when it comes to policy. We wouldn't make a policy that affected farmers without asking farmers. You know, we make policy all the time without talking to people that are most affected. We want to lift up their voices and get them a seat at the table. Nay, we want to help them demand the seat at the table that they should have. Devin, for people in the uh, the Philadelphia or uh, uh, Pennsylvania area that want more information about your group, the Harm Reduction Coalition, what should they do? Yeah, we're you know we're on the web at paharmreduction. Org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter uh, at PA Harm Reduction. Come check us out. Get involved. We'd love to hear, come to your community, train you on how to be an advocate, and help you join the movement to end the overdose epidemic and the failed war on drugs. Uh, Devin Reed's executive director, co-founder, Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. Uh, great stuff. Uh, continued uh, success with your work and obviously your sobriety, which you're really good at. Uh, and thanks so much for your time, Devin. All right. Thanks for having me on. Great. Take care, everybody. Uh, Look for more Recovery Radio straight ahead. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.